the case. You're saying to me you're trilingual, which is more more astonishing. Scots more Scots speak foreign languages than people in other parts of Britain. Is that a fact? It Why is, a fact. is that? Um, because we're more externally focused. Actually, yeah, I think I think that makes sense. That makes sense. Maybe as a smaller nation mindset as well. It's like you yep. know, big neighbor at the the big neighbor at the, at, at, on the south. It's less, you know, yeah. You need to reach out, reach out to traditional allies like the French, for instance. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Cool. As we kick off, you might as well explain yourself, Adam. Like, why are you wearing the tricolor? Where are you exactly right now? Well, I'm in France, but um, actually. I'm wearing I'm wearing this tricolor because I bought some tickets for the Olympics in Paris next year, and uh, they emailed me some uh, they emailed me like buy this merch, you know, and I fell for the marketing and just bought loads of stuff. So, so this yes. is the the official gear for next year. Is this is what you're yes. wearing now? Is it? It's a, yes, it's like a training top for the. Yes. Cool. cool. I, I, I just love I absolutely love France. I love it so much, and I have done for forty six years yeah that's great um i need to i need to see more france i have to say um i'm one of these that literally paris and that's it and then paris back and you know it's all like work wise right but you never go to another part of the country so i definitely need to do that um i, I do it's the same thing with with germany it's always berlin but this time i'm going to berlin i'm also taking three days in hamburg as well because i thought i cannot be just spending time in berlin all the time i love the city but i can't just stay there you know um yeah. Anyway, we're live, everybody. Welcome to Brain Food Live on Air. It is episode 212. Uh, we're bringing it to you every Friday. We're back at HQ, and I'm really excited to be chatting with you today because this has been on my mind for longer than you might imagine. Um, and I think it's one of those like macro issues that we in recruitment probably feel sort of the impact of, but we're not really talking about it enough. Um, maybe because we're just at the front end of it. But with the COVID, the candidate shortage, the persistent labor shortage issues, even when we are apparently in a recession and even when, you know, loads of people are being laid off, there's still workers we can't hire. We can't hire nurses, can't hire teachers, can't hire construction people. Uh, Ireland can't hire anybody that knows how to mix concrete. Um, tradespeople, all of this, we're missing people. Why is that? Is it possible that we are actually missing the absolute numbers of human beings? And in other words, the population that does this type of work, bear in mind, usually physical work uh, that you need to be physically fit to do, have we actually got too old as a society and we're not able to actually grow enough people to do those jobs, hence why we try to import them and then we create all kinds of political issues um, and, and cultural conflict uh, with immigration. Um, so demographic crisis, that's the topic of today's conversation. What is the impact? Um, what is the impact of, uh, how does this uh, help us think about immigration? Uh, what does it mean going forward? What does it mean in the AI-enabled world? That is the topic of today's chat. Um, all right, let's do some sound checks first of all. Folks, uh, for everyone who is watching this on Crowdcast, this is the safest place to watch Brain Food Live, by the way. Always going to be here rather than anywhere else. Can you hear me okay? If so, let me know in the chat. Um, we should be live streaming this all over the place. There has been a bug on LinkedIn, I'm afraid to say. Um, which has prevented go live on time for the last two episodes I've noticed. So we've basically gone live streaming in different places 10 minutes after the fact, um, which is super, super annoying. Uh, but I can see myself on LinkedIn, all right? So I think we've actually fired off okay. 
if you can watch this on LinkedIn or any other LinkedIn, there's loads of people also live streaming this, including Juliana Park, including Rob uh, Walker, uh, including Claire Mohammed. If you're watching it on their profiles, uh, let me know in the comments on the, li the LinkedIn uh, thread there. And then we, we should be able to kind of understand where we're at. I think people can hear us okay uh, on uh, on a crowdcast, which is great. And I can see us going live here. Okay, let's talk about. Um, well, before we get into it, let's uh, let's uh, uh, let's let's thank our sponsors. Um, as ever, folks, we need to thank our sponsors for this show. Every single week, a company comes up and says, "You know what, Hong? We're going to help you keep this conversation on the road." Uh, and today. It is none other than Candidate, one of the big sponsors of Brain Food this year, um, uh, one of the, the coolest embedded uh, recruiting companies that we've seen come out of the UK over the last several years. Um, they are sponsoring today's show. And CEO Alex Van Claveren is actually on uh, waiting on the wings, fully swagged up to tell us all about it. Uh, let's see whether we can bring Alex on screen uh, and hear from him. Uh, he's another person that has decided to exit to warmer climbs, by the way. Um, he is in, uh, I, I believe he's in Lisbon right now. So it's like flight from the Brits, from British Isles. There hey, he is. Hey, how's it going? Brexit effect. How are you doing, Alex? Nice yeah, to see you. Yeah, good, thanks. I'm actually in London. Are you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why didn't you say we should catch, we, uh, maybe, uh, you, maybe you didn't want to see me, mate. Uh, I get it. Um, <laughs> Literally came back yesterday. <laughs> I just got back. Nice to see you, Adam. Nice to see you. Yeah, all good? Very good. Nice. Cool. Nice. Well, well, before we get on, um, Alex, if you're hanging around next couple of days, whatever you've got time, let me know. Obviously, it'd be good to go for a beer or, or a coffee or something. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, firstly, where's the swag, mate? Here's an opportunity to get the brand out, you know, and push it in people's faces in an obnoxious way. And there you are wearing a beige sweatshirt, <laughs> mate. Um, didn't even cross my mind. Complete missed opportunity. Uh, but Alex... Tell us about a candidate. Who are you? What it, what it is you do? Why should people care about it? Yeah, so real quick. So I was practicing how to do like a live ad in an entertaining way. And there's a podcast which is called Smartless. I don't know if you come across it and they do a really good job. So I've been practicing from them. So 60 seconds real quick. I'm going to give it to you. So I'm Alex, CEO at Candidate. Thank you, Hong, for having me. At Candidate, we partner with talent teams at fast-growing companies to help them hire. Our sourcing team has been trained by some of the world's best sourcing coaches like Ala Pavlova and Vanessa Rath, two friends of the show, I believe. This is not just operating LinkedIn. This is advanced sourcing methods using multiple different platforms and techniques like Boolean search. We would like to offer everyone out there, we will do a 100% free trial to work with one of our world-class sources. What does that mean? 20 superstar candidates added to your talent pipeline. We will work on any role no matter how challenging, I'll probably regret that. But uh, <laughs> we are particularly effective at the engineering and senior hires. We have done 150 of these trials in the last 12 months, and an astounding 57%, 57% has resulted, uh, I'll say that again, has resulted in a direct hire. Um, no charges if you hire, no hidden fees at all. It's a 100% free trial. Thank you so much, Hung. Nice to see you, Adam. Over to you. Wow, wow, well, that's absolutely amazing. 57 free placements you've made. Let, let's get me make this clear. So essentially, anybody listening to this can claim a free trial Correct. from Candidate to help you boost your pipeline. Think of a job right now you're struggling to fill any job. They're going to put 20 candidates into that pipeline because they're going to dedicate a resourcer uh, to basically help you fill that job. That sounds like an incredible offer to me. 
uh, completely like this hands-free, right? There's no, there's no, no strings attached. No strings attached. Right. How people are saying they're in. How do how do they claim? How do you want these people to claim? <laughs> so I will put my email on in the chat thing here. You just email me now. They do have to be proper companies. Like it can't just be like you know. I'm kind of looking for something. So we will have a chat, but uh, we've done 150 of these in the last 12 months. Right, that's amazing. So I would say get in touch with Alex. Obviously, it's the email there. Uh, get connect with LinkedIn, obviously, and just let him know that you heard this offer on Brain Food Live. It's all over. We're, we're broadcasting this all over the place, by the way. So if you want to just drop your, I don't know, drop your LinkedIn into a comment yeah, thread somewhere, somebody will pick that up somewhere um, and we'll just get you involved in this process. Uh, like I say, it's an incredible offer. There are jobs out there that are incredibly difficult to fill. Or maybe you just like haven't got the capacity sometimes to look at or give attention uh, to jobs that are fillable. It's a free shot. 20 extra candidates. Go ahead and do it. Alex, thank you so much for your generosity, mate. This is the sort of offers we want to see from sponsors. <laughs> we want to keep encouraging companies to do this to help uh, recruiters uh, hit their targets and do better this year. Um, but yeah, listen, thank you so much, Alex. Uh, enjoy thank the rest you. of the show. We'll catch up in the next couple of days. I'll make sure we'll, uh, we'll do that, mate. Speak soon. Thanks a lot. Take care, man. Cool. I love it. That's this mega generosity. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's such a doable thing. Uh, yes, it includes the education sector, Liz. It could be teachers, it could be nurses, it could be, uh, it could be exactly the people we're talking about, actually. So all of those people are totally relevant for this. Um, just, uh, I guess, uh, get into Alex. Alex K, it looks like. Uh, a candidate with a K. Uh, sorry, it doesn't make sense. Alex VK. Alex VK at candidate.com. The candidate is with a capital K um email them and say look I, i'm gonna take your offer from brain food live don't no further qualifications you don't need to ask whether this is real or not just claim it um and we'll be there all right cool adam let's talk very quickly about the newsletter did you read it last week in your sunny spot in france whilst you're on, on a lake somewhere did you have the chance to peruse brain food if so what was interesting mate? i did and i've got three um so the first one is the video which links um the uh, commercial property being like empty in major cities with the fact that the banks are and investment companies are funding um, a lot of that and it's losing money and the link to media um, owning large shares in like banks and investment companies. Uh, it doesn't take much of a genius to you know, um, fill in the dots there. I saw... Um, yesterday, somebody posted um, online, uh, in fact, it was Joel Cheeseman posted online that 5% of New York City has left New York City since 2020, and 7.5% of San Francisco has left San Francisco since 2020. It's not exactly a surprise, is it? Um, it's too expensive. I mean, 18, 20, 20 months ago, 20 months or so ago, the rents in places like San Francisco were just incredibly high. You couldn't get it uh, even if you wanted to. Absolutely untenable. The reason why people needed wages of astronomical levels was to afford the basic living standards there. Um, and, and obviously shift to remote, you know, why do you need to live in San Francisco? Just drop down to San Diego or something or, you know, go. You could even stay in California and, and uh, live a much better lifestyle working from remote rather than going in. Um, and the same goes with New York. Um, so yeah, there's a flight in the in in the US to different states um, and it, that's re replicated everywhere. You see in London, for instance, 
uh, HSBC let go of their iconic uh, sort of uh, Canary Wharf tower. Yeah. Um, it's going to come down to a much smaller uh, uh, free desk type of type of spot. So they're already gone to the hybrid model. Man, if Canary Wharf collapses, you know that entire that entire space. That's like billions of dollars of real estate and what's really interesting is blackrock vanguard these investment managers <laughs> they own half the banks they also own all the real estate and they also own half the media <laughs> so so when you start hearing the return to office stuff i call it the manufacturer of consent to come yeah. back to the office is because yeah. they're shoring up their portfolios um yeah. crazy yeah. they're all yeah. interdependent aren't they um Actually, all three that I'm going to talk about today are sort of macroeconomic type things or they're real big picture things. So the second one is, is not quite about the same thing, but it's definitely linked. And um, that's the concept of the four-day work week. So um, Hayes undertook a survey of 11,000 workers and 93% said they thought it was a good idea. 89% uh, felt like it would be uh, beneficial to their health and well-being. 59% thought it would um, be good for their like organization's productivity. 44% said they thought it would help with talent attraction. I'm surprised that wasn't 100% that thought it would help with talent attraction. But anyway, 92% yeah. um, of people doing it said it has made a positive impact on their home life. 84% said it's made a positive impact on their work. 53% of employers who are not doing it said they're not operationally ready for it. I mean, that literally means their payroll system isn't set up for it and they haven't done... You don't you need know, to change some... the payroll. Just just, just tell people not to come in. I mean, it's, it's a BS argument. That um, I mean, the only the only circumstance where they can make the operational argument is if they're actually servicing customers on a... Or they've actually got interface with customers um, on the day that they want to kind of reduce down. But well, you can moderate that by kind of having people make the choice as to which day it is. So you've always got coverage. Yeah, um, they, they, they do. They do need to make payroll changes because they've got to make changes to people's contracts. And uh, the, the, the you know everybody might be earning the same and they might be getting paid the same, but they do have to change the way the you know everybody's contract needs to change because it needs to be based on um, different days and different hours and things like that. And then things like insurances might have to change. Mate, that's, a single, these... that's a single push update. You could just push that update to every contract and get everyone to commit to it. It's not. It's not. It's not technical. What about what about people? Well, I've actually looked at it myself. And what what about people who are already on a four day week, for example? What what's mm. the impact on them? And there are quite a lot of like real nuanced things that need to be looked at. But even still, it shouldn't be an it shouldn't be an impediment to to doing it. But the the bit that I thought was the most interesting was. 34% um, of companies said they'd be more likely to do it if all four days were spent in the office. Yep. And 62% of employers said they would be happy to work in the office four days rather than five days hybrid. Now, this is like merging two different issues which aren't really related and shouldn't be related. A four-day work week and the concept of where you work are different things. So you can, like you can control issue in here. Managers are very can, reluctant to relinquish control. Sometimes. You can understand the clawback though. Um, like let's say returns. Oh, it, it doesn't, you can force it. Basically the employees want something back from it. And I, I get, 
get that as well. Let's say the return to office is a big clarion call. Are they going to start doing it? Massive resistance from people. And then you just dangle whatever compromise you can and say, look, listen, um, we're going to shift to four-day week, keep your salary as is, but you've got to come in. I think it's a decent deal, um, and I think a lot of people would take that. Um, but the suggestion, the suge the suggestion there is that there's an acknowledgement that working in the office is better. And I, I, I don't know if we're at that point yet. Have we? Have we got any? Have we got some agreement on that? Yeah. No, no but I think I think the employers think it is. Um, so employers, I'm talking about the people that own the Sachs. business and the people that yeah that that do in, indeed invest in other businesses right so if you again you look at the investment management side they invest so much in all other types of businesses that they would understand that this is the right thing this is definitely like you can go marxist on this this is a, a you know proletariat versus a bourgeoisie conflict um but i think the conflict will eventually resolve itself into four day in office um and basically the proletariat will accept that um so um so yeah, yeah. i could could be where we're at uh by the way maury uh totally right on the rents rents in london going up the up through the roof as well it is actually a bit of a mystery because it's definitely the case that populations uh has declined so it should mean rents go down it hasn't happened why uh, theory is the landlords are hoarding it um or they're leaving the landlord market and taking the stock away um so there's all kinds of different reasons why the rent inflation is insane even though the uh, you're welcome michael make sure you bookmark that by the way um and uh, and basically the uh, uh the the the, the, the there's, a, there's a discrepancy between rental and uh retail so retail how much you would pay anyway um for the working week yeah it's worth checking out that hayes thing in case you want to argue internally go and share, share that around um, okay, one okay. more, mate. Yeah, last one was, um, as always, McKinsey's brilliant work around um, the impact of different things and what it's going to do for different types of jobs. So they looked at the impact of generative AI um, on 16 different business functions, and they set out a sc sort of scatter graph, or of, um, I don't know if that's the technical term for it, but something like that, around like what, 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 how, which diff, which of these functions are going to spend a lot of their budgets on it and what is the impact going to be now what this tells me is what are the jobs to encourage my kids to go and aspire to do in the future right um so sales were are forecast to spend only five percent of their budgets on generative ai but the impact's going to be more than 75 percent of annual like productivity and contribution so i mean that's just huge it's very huge marketing again only 10 percent of their budget but again a huge uplift in product customer operations much larger percent percent of their budget on it 40 percent but big big uplift in value uh, engineering again 30 percent or something big uplift in value but things like corporate it strategy um legal pricing there there, there was Four or five where low spend on this area and McKinsey are predicting low impact as well. So go and work in corporate IT, strategy, legal, pricing. I don't know where talent acquisition fits into that. I don't think it was on the list. Um, it was. It was. They, they, uh, McKinsey were very bullish on talent acquisition and indeed all of HR because they're saying it's high EQ work and they should be secure against... Um, secure against AI disintermediation, so to speak. Um, but but um, yeah. but yeah, I've got my I've got my question marks on all of that. Um, uh, even though 
uh, it's optimistic. So what I've just shared in the link, go ahead and read that. Really important. Uh, by the way, McKinsey's right. worth reading, not because you just take it as gospel, but guess what? Your boss is going to read that. Um, so even if you don't swallow it hook, line, and sinker, you've got to know what the executive level are thinking about. Um, there's going to be a McKinsey worm in that person's ear. Um, so you need to know at least the kind of information your CEO is consuming so that you can understand what, what's going on. And like Adam mentioned, you got kids, you got to kind of guide kids to the, to the future. That's going to be, um, at least viable. Um, and that is true for yourself also in the sense that, you know, you still got a career going forward. None of us are looking at retirement anytime soon. It's another topic we need to touch upon uh, when we talk about demographic crisis. How do we support people that are becoming increasingly infirm and able to sustain themselves? Okay, great. Um, we've got to also think about this, but make sure you're positioning in such a way um, that there's going to be future, like robust need for what you can offer. Um, no point in doubling down on stuff that basically... Uh, people would prefer a robot to do or some software to do. Um, Sorry, I see that. They, I see. I see you're right. They do. They've got talent and organization is what they call it, which includes HR, and they've got five percent of annual spend on this. I think they've got that wrong. I think it's I going to be a much higher percentage of annual spend is going to go into this. I think they're totally wrong on that. I think one thing they the mistake about this. I, I have sympathy with the EQ argument, um, but the reality is, <laughs> comp companies should get smaller. Um, yeah. as a result of AI. So the complexity yeah. of a company will go down, the social complexity will go down, therefore all of the HR stuff will go down. If you, if you look at sort of um, the requirement for HR expands exponentially with the complexity of the business um, because there's lots more uh, connections, lots more information, employee relations becomes a thing, you know, DNI becomes a bigger thing, everything becomes a bigger thing once you have a larger, more complex uh, social organization. You crunch it down to 10 person business, do you need a HR person? You just need decent managers. Um, so um, the, the, basically, TA and HR, I think will, will, the, the, the danger for us isn't so much, oh, AI is going to directly disintermediate what we do. It's just going to make companies smaller, which basically means that the overall requirement for our uh, support functions will, will probably decrease. Um, in which case, again, we need to be agile, career agile, and think about how the hell we position ourselves on that. Um, anyway. Let's get on with it. Let's get some of our, uh, our wonderful guests on and talk about the demographic crisis here. We do have Kevin Wheeler. Everyone knows him. Let's get him on. We're going to get everyone on, by the way. There's no point in delaying it any further. Let's get Letitia on as well. I see Mariano chatting away also, so we'll make sure Mariano is here as well. Boom. Right. That's why we're bringing people on here. John John's said, uh, get, get your kids into legal via apprenticeships. I, I, don't, I don't think you can, I don't think law firms do apprenticeships. You have to go to university and qualify as a lawyer to go into a traineeship, I think. Um, but the other thing is, I, I, I feel like McKinsey might have got that wrong as well. Legal jobs, there's so much repetitive stuff in a lawyer job, unless you're a partner. Everything else is so repetitive. Yeah, the uh, law is not a good place to to operate in. I don't I, think. I don't um, think it is. It's going to that, get obliterated. Yeah, it should, and it should get obliterated. To be fair. Um, okay, uh, let's uh, let, let's say hi to our guest, Letitia. Wonderful to see you on the show. Yeah, by the way, I'm I've been a big fan of Letitia for a long time. Everyone should subscribe to her newsletter. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, but Letitia, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? What it is you do? Uh, tell the audience about real quick. Thanks, Hung. I'm so happy to be here with you and thanks for the invitation. I'm, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time too. 
Um, so I write about the future of work. I've been doing this for about eight years. I write for a French media company called uh, Welcome to the Jungle. And I'm French, but I live in Germany. So vive la France, Adam, uh, you're, you're right. Um, I'm, I'm being more French as I you know, have lived abroad for 10 years. Um, and I write about the future of work with a feminist perspective. So with this blind spot that a lot of perspectivists have that they don't look at, um, you know, the gender issue or uh, pink collar jobs. Um, it's mostly about, you know, automating white collar tasks rather than, you know, changing diapers and, um, and cleaning toilets, uh, which um, AI cannot yet do or it's too expensive to have machines do those things. Yeah, fantastic. Everyone should just follow Letitia. I've just sent the, her LinkedIn on there. Um, really, really powerful thinker on the future of work. Uh, we have, of course, Kevin Wheeler. Kevin, great to see you as well. Uh, I don't think anybody doesn't know who you are, but can you quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? What it is you do? Sure. Uh, I run the Future of Talent Institute. Uh, we've been trying to track and uh, write about and speak about the trends in talent acquisition and HR for the last uh, 20 years or so and uh, spend a lot of time just looking at what's going what's going on and where is it going to take us. Amazing. Also, Future of Talent, uh, Future of Work, I think it's called. The newsletter is amazing. Also, another newsletter you need to subscribe to. So feel free to link link your newsletters into the chat stream there. Uh, and finally, we have uh, Mariano Mamatino. Uh, Mariano, congratulations. You have a new job. Um, so firstly, well done on that. Um, and secondly, <laughs> uh, quickly introduce yourself. Who are you? What it is you do? Yeah, no, thanks, Hank. So I'm Mariano. I'm a labor economist. Um, more recently, I joined the Burning Glass Institute, which is not to be uh, mixed up with the Burning Glass Technologies. Uh, the Institute is a think tank that was founded about a couple of years ago. Uh, so it's kind of like up and coming, like a new uh, nonprofit. Um, yeah, I joined there when I do research on labor markets uh, and education as well. Uh, before that, uh, last 10 years, I was mostly working at tech companies. So Indeed and LinkedIn, um, recently Amazon. And before that, I uh, was a researcher like in academia and international organization, but always looking at labor markets, future work, immigration, and uh, the, uh, demographics and other, you know, other topics really close to my heart. So it's great to be here uh, and to be on this show again. Let's get into it. I mean, basically, Adam, you and me are obviously the least intelligent people here. So we, we'll, do the, we'll do the minimum of, of chat. Um, let, let's throw it into, um, actually, no, we'll keep asking the dumb questions as representing the audience. That's, that's our job. Um, okay. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's ask you, Kevin, can you define what we mean about the demographic crisis? It's kind of a term that's now bleeding into the mainstream. You start seeing it into newspapers, probably for the first time, you know, in the, in the broadcast media uh, over the last 12 months or so. Can you give us a definition of what the crisis is? What is demographic crisis? Basically, really simply, it's we're getting older and we're having fewer children. That's that's the bottom line. And if you look at the birth rates in all of the developed world, which includes China, uh, all of Europe, uh, the United States, uh, and selective other countries, uh, we're having less than replacement birth rate. So basically, it requires uh, statistically 2.1 children per woman to replace the current population. And Europe is as low as 1.1 to as high as, you know, 1.9. But it's, it's really uh, a significant issue. And China is about 1.1. Uh, 
Uh, Japan is like the same. So basically more people are dying than are being born. Uh, and that's a huge problem. And at the same time, those of us who are alive are getting older every year. So, you know, you've got older population with fewer young people to backfill. Yeah, I think that's a pretty succinct uh, sort of description. And actually, I remember now you mentioned Japan. Uh, wasn't it like two or three years or so ago where they, they kind of, there was a really interesting retail stat, which was a shocking kind of revelation. But apparently the purchase of adult, adult diapers um, exceeded that of uh, diapers for kids. Um, and that was like a big sign to say, wow, what's going on here? Essentially, the population has aged so much. And obviously, people in Japan live longer. There's another factor of aging, like our longevity has increased. But because of that, our, the amount of time that we spent needing to be supported, because we might be infirm, we get to a point where actually we're not able to work or we, we maybe we shouldn't be working, you know? I mean, I don't want my mom to be working when she's 78 or whatever, you know, she should be retired. So we're getting to the point where um, basically the, there's too many old people, not enough young people, the pipeline in recruiting, we love talking about pipeline, but the pipeline of young talent isn't there. And we basically fill it with immigration, right? That's essentially what has been the solution, quote unquote, over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years or so. We've brought people in to fill in the gaps. Um, so, uh, Mariano, let's, um, I wonder whether, actually, no, I would not drop you into it, Mariano, but there's another term I want to talk about, which was, um, I, I want us to define for the audience, which was, um, um, what is it, the... Uh, dependency ratio. Is that something you're familiar with anybody here? Uh, like the concept of how many people in society are working and therefore sort of taxpaying, therefore supporting the society and how many people that aren't working and actually are dependents and need support. And there's a ratio that tells you, okay, that number's okay because there's enough people supporting the social system. But the dependency, dependency ratio can actually get skewed with this demographics and eventually we have too many dependents and not enough supporters, which means more work, um, you know, less time off, more pressure and stuff like this. So is there, has anyone heard of this term or is this something I've just fished out of my, you know, uh, wrong, wrong side? <laughs> well, I've, I've definitely heard of it, but I think the offset to that is, is corporate profits and how much they contribute to the overall economy. So if you have fewer people working and companies are making more and more money, then theoretically you could tax those companies higher and redistribute that income to these people that aren't working. So that's kind of the concept now. Changing the tax structure is not politically very easy to do. So that's the real challenge. But uh, you know, using the dependency ratio is the only method assumes that you know all of us working are paying for everybody else. And that's only partially true. Yeah. So, so you're basically saying the ways in which we, we pay for social services is through personal tax of workers, but also corporate tax, of course. Um, and that needs to be piped into the right places. So, by the way, taxation isn't the only thing that's required. You've also got to figure out where you spend the tax money. Uh, there's no point just taxing everybody and then deciding to spend it on irrelevant stuff um, or on catastrophic sort of initiatives uh, that burn burn cash. Um, so, OK. Um, Mariano, as a person that's kind of focusing on um, uh, on the on the economic side of it, um, is this something that you study 
in your work? Um, and what contribution does the demographic crisis make to what we recruiters have been feeling? As Because we call it the candidate shortage at our end. We're, we can't find the workers, right? So are those two things linked? Or is there another, is there another way to think about this, uh, in your opinion? No, absolutely. They're 100% linked. Uh, I also just wanted to quickly comment on something, you know, on the pension. Uh, I, you know, I, I think like the pension system was built like in a society where you had like a, a dependency ratio that was, you know, kind of like stable over time. So you had like enough like younger people working for, you know, like a, like a fewer share of people retiring. And that's something we're probably going to have to change, right? So even this like zero one like type retirement where like you're working, you're not working anymore, might not maybe be something that uh, in the future, you know, we'll keep working as, as that dependency ratio, uh, you know, becomes different. But uh, yeah, demographics has, have everything to do, you know, with like labor markets. It's uh, they, that determine like a, ultimately like the size of the labor force. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously like very important. So I think what we're observing like today it's a couple of different things. So uh, obviously what Kevin was saying, you know, like the, the big picture is that uh, fertility rates are like lower, but also fertility rates are like decreasing faster than we would have thought just a few years ago. Uh, I can give you like one number from Brazil, which is like a stat from this week. Uh, so Brazil has 10 million less people than demographers would have expected just a year ago. So the census ran, they got the results in. Uh, Brazil is missing like 10 million like people. So... And Brazil is it's obviously like a middle-income country, right? And you, we think as economists, like demographers think about this, is like the demographic transition of countries. It seems that, you know, like middle and sometimes even lower-income countries today are already like transitioning at a rate that is faster. So what, what does this mean for recruiters? Well, um, there are some jobs that are already hard to fill, right? And that, that has more to do with things like skill mismatch, the fact that not enough people maybe study like STEM degrees or, you know, like maybe kind of like technical uh, skilled trades, like professions. And, and those are, you know, obviously they're going to be affected by the demographic like crunch, but they're already like hard to fill roles. I think what the, the demographic crunch is going to bring is actually uh, these shortages are going to become more widespread. So perhaps like even roles that uh, in the past might have been, you know, like easier to fill in a way. So jobs that didn't require like a, maybe some really advanced education uh, then we might start to feel, you know, that even those roles are, are going to be harder to, to fill. And this is, I think we're already seeing some of that, you know, like uh, coming out of the pandemic. Um, you know, the labor market has been pretty, pretty like resilient. Uh, we have like record levels of occupation uh, of like uh, employment. Um, and so that's, and unemployment hasn't really increased much. Uh, I think to some extent, you know, like demographics are already contributing to that, especially in Europe where you have like countries like Germany, for example, like Italy, where labor force have been shrinking for, for a while. So, so yeah, absolutely. You know, this, I think we're going to have to adjust probably to like a new normal where shortages are going to be more widespread. So, so one solution is pensions, isn't it, Leticia? Let's bring you in as the, as the French representative, very famously. Um, and, and obviously there's like a, a seemingly another sort of big surge of public protest uh, recently in France, unrelated, I believe, to, uh, to the pension uh, increase. Um, but there was an increase in pension age um, that triggered a huge response from people who obviously had pre maybe planned for hey retirement at this point and suddenly they have to work extra years in the UK. There's no question that's going to happen as well. Um, uh, you know, even a bigger hike um, going forward. Do you reckon that this is one of the solutions to 
this uh, kind of uh, dependency ratio simply get people working longer? I mean, is, is that, I mean, leaving aside the ethics of it, do you think that's a legitimate way to try and tem temporarily like stave off this problem? Uh, if you were a policymaker, what, what are your thoughts on raising pension ages overall? In, in theory, it's always a good idea to, to think that way, but not without thinking about what work entails, um, how uh, exhausting it is, how it's organized, how it's compatible, ergonomically speaking, with aging and an aging population. And those were questions that were on the table during the, you know, the debates about the pension reform in, in France. And, and there have been so many misconceptions about that reform. Number one, um, the French are not lazy. Um, it's, it has nothing to do with laziness. They had a pretty good system which they wanted to keep. Number two, uh, people think that uh, the pension age, age was raised from 62 to 64. That's not exactly correct. The thing is, you have to wait until 64 to get a full pension, provided you have, you know, you have all your contributions. So many people already work up in, until 67 or 68 to have a full pension. Mostly women uh, who have had career interruptions, uh, they never have all the contributions, so they never have a full pension, which is why you have a 40% gender gap. Uh, when it comes to pensions um, in France, it's even higher in Germany or other countries. And so there are a lot of underlying questions that are more subtle than just raising pension age, which on paper seems pretty easy and undebatable, but it's actually more complex. Yeah, so it's a crude measure. Um, it's a crude measure. Uh, obviously, I think the governments are incapable of anything but crudity, by the way. And this is not a criticism of governments, but I think they just have blunt tools. Like they, they just don't have the implementation capacity to do anything with any nuance. So big blunt tool. Let's raise the age. Let's see what happens. And there's going to be massive social strife. And there's going to, as you mentioned, many, many people that are not going to, it's not it's going to be really really difficult for certain types of people um and as always it's the most vulnerable people uh, that will be impacted the most i didn't even know that situation with the the gender gap either Leticia. so thank you for uh, for educating me on this um i've, I've been uh, for some reason a um uh like a very early critic of pensions in general like i just don't I, i've just ignored it um i just didn't never believe it was something i would ever get so um i don't know anything about it i'm totally clueless um but um but yeah now that we kind of figure out figure out there's a lot of people that actually are dependent on it and they see it as a a signpost to say we've got there and now the the the, the post is moving that's got to be really really difficult um okay another way to solve it is immigration um, right, we've seen only this week some really interesting and aggressive moves by Canada. I don't know whether you guys saw that. Uh, Canada basically saying, hey, if you're in the US with a H-1B, you can come over here. And it's like, I love that. It's like literally saying, right, US, you've already done the assessment. We're just going to tick the people. I thought, right, that's brilliant, aggressive move. But that's like someone who's being, uh, Canada's being super, super aggressive and i mean that in a non-negative way but in a way to understand they need an injection of people we've seen poland um be very very um the change and loosen their immigration policies at a very surprising rate because we previously might have anticipated poland being quite hostile to immigration suddenly they're saying you know what come on in germany um i think only last week have said you know what uh, we, we need these tradespeople and they need to come in 
are we starting to change the attitude to immigration and trying to shift the story to a, for it being a positive thing to a negative thing? And what do we think of this as a solution to the dependency ratio and maybe even demographic crisis? They're younger people going to come in, right? So does that is that one way to solve this? Open, open up to everyone. Well, I will just uh, throw in my thoughts. I think immigration in the short term is going to be incredibly important for many companies to bridge the gaps. But the real challenge is the quality of the immigrants and their educational levels. And that's the real challenge. And, you know, AI is unfortunately going to have a disproportionate impact on the bottom end of the workforce. Um, this is what all the research points to. So companies like Amazon that might hire a lot of immigrants to you know, fulfill, go in the warehouse and package all the stuff that you order, um, that's going to be roboticized very quickly. So that's typically where a lot of the immigrants uh, we get in the U.S. come from South America or Africa or, or uh, Mexico. They're usually lower skilled employees who work in those kind of jobs. And those jobs are rapidly going to become roboticized. So if you can if you can say immigration of highly educated you know, people, that's wonderful and great and should definitely be encouraged, which is what the H-1B visa in the U.S. tries to do. But that's not the major group of people who uh, are immigrating, uh, who want to immigrate. So, you know, you've got a real, a real challenge here about who wants to immigrate versus um, what do you, what does a company want to receive for people, right? So these become real, real challenges for, for companies, countries, uh, and their, and their immigration policies, right? But the bottom line is for Europe in particular, uh, if you don't uh, encourage immigration, it's going to be a real crisis, I think, for most countries in Asia and Europe. Do you, do you know what? I, I'm going to disagree with this. I reckon, look, if the issue is actually demographic crisis, we just need the like the youth infusion, all right? We just need younger people in. Um, and if it doesn't matter about your education. Um, literally, if you're a, like a, a human being that is able to reproduce, get in the country. Um, if you want to be a completely like uh, 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 crude about it, um, because... Even the, even if like you can't predict what uh, how this person's going to turn out, right? Like you can say, right, this person currently is coming in at this level. Wasn't Steve Jobs? His, his parent was like a Syrian uh, refugee or something. Like he would he his parent would have been screened out if we were too harsh at the filtration level at the entry point. We just need to get the the, the people in so that you know what, put them into the system give them a way to integrate and they can fly forward. And yes, some of them are going to not, not go in the right direction and whatnot, but that's just simply the way it is. Vanessa, you're quite right. There's the reverse impact of this, which is countries being denuded of people. Um, and South Africa is a very good example, huge brain drain. And also even within Europe, we see this. Brazil. Um, so Brazil is actually one of those that has lost a lot of talent from South America to Europe and also now US. But yeah. All of, all of, all of the, 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 the Southern European countries, um, Greece, uh, uh, Bulgaria, um, uh, all of those countries, Italy, lost a lot of talent to Northern Europe. That was basically the Northern European early attempt to do uh, freedom of movement immigration. That, that's not been sufficient. Um, and now they need to do non-EU immigration. Is it just like almost like robbing Peter to pay Paul a little bit here? And we're, we're kind of just like stealing. It's almost like colonial extraction, right? We're going to these countries, just pulling these people out. Um, and all right, like forgetting about what's happening to those countries. Population crisis is exacerbated by losing the talent. Bulgaria, I think, is like crashing down not only through demographic crisis, but through emigration crisis. They're losing their people. So, okay, 
it's, but, it's a selfish solution, immigration, I think, uh, but there's a fundamental problem. Go on, Adam, you say something. Can I, yeah, I just want to ask about, um, like, aligned to that, um, <clears throat> as I understand, the global population is about 8 billion today, and it's the highest it's ever been. Um, and it's projected to grow to about 10 billion in 2086, and then start to come down a little bit, round about 2087. So where, where is all this? Where is the, where's the extra 2 billion from if we're like, don't have enough people in all these Western countries? With, with, with denuding them. I mean, basically, the, right now, the reason why people are interested in Africa, Africa, for, yeah. it's the curse of Africa for Africa is that it's always been perceived as like a resource rich place that other, other places exploit. Uh, previously, it might have been minerals and resources. Now it's like people. Um, but at the same time, culturally, in Europe, we have a huge hostility towards African immigration. Um, I mean, we, that's very, very evident um, when you see uh, tragic sort of instances uh, occur at a, a regular basis. Um, so immigration seems like a temporary salve, even though it damages other countries. And also there's cultural problems with it because there's, there's cultural resistance that manifests politically. Um, and I think we've seen the rise of the right in, in all of European countries, and that's fueled by uh, non-white immigration, if I can use those terms. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, do we need to have the arg argument internally that immigration isn't the solution? Or, and I, I'm careful here, and I realize I might be stepping into like delicate ground, or do we pay some attention to the right-wing perspective to say, look, that isn't the solution, we need to find a reason for people to actually do the work that seemingly native people are refusing to do. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe if I can jump in quickly, like, so um, I, I think maybe we should maybe also change the mindset a bit. So I think like migration is not necessarily also like a, you know, like zero one like thing again. So we have like things like, you know, circular migration. So people like moving to a place, going back to their home countries. I, we've seen that, for example, you know, Europe, where you have like a, a pretty interesting like social experiment of like free movement within the EU, you have actually quite a lot of that. So we've seen now with like Poland, for example, it was mentioned before, it's a country that's benefited quite a lot as the labor market got relatively stronger. Uh, you know, in recent years, you've got a lot of people moving, for example, from the UK back to Poland. So, and this is just one example. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, as you get people more educated, and by the way, I think that's the solution or like to the, all the worst problem, like including, you know, like talent shortages, which is like investing in education. So maybe there is there, you know, to be a case to be made also from, you know, like richer countries or like higher income countries to think about that on a, the problem on a global scale. So we have an opportunity with remote work as well to employ people without having them necessarily like move, you know, physically to a, a different location. So, um, but yeah, I think education is gonna, is gonna be key from that point of view. Uh, we're gonna have this like, in the next like 40, 50 years, it's like massive, um, kind of like youth, young population in countries like Africa, even India to some extent. Uh, so um, I, I think, you know, there is potential like mutual benefit. And I, also one thing that I want to say is that migration actually, um, you know, for, especially for people who are educated, uh, has a really high return for the person who is the migrant. So they might be able to earn like maybe 20 times you know, the life, lifetime income that they would have earned, like if they stayed like in the country where they were born. So, well, even just economically, this is huge because of like, you know, matching resources to, you know, uh, to the right like use. So um, efficient matching, but 
for the person, uh, people themselves, obviously has like huge uh, kind of like life implications as well. So obviously, uh, this is a it's a pretty complex, um, co complex like uh, topic. But I think like maybe more global thinking uh, about uh, issues and I think would probably be welcome. And uh, I think it's also what I what I like is the fact that you know a few years ago there was a lot of like opposition to immigration. Let's think about Brexit. Uh, you know, uh, for, yeah. for example, yeah, it's it seems like now in a lot of countries the situation is actually reversed, right? So you have like Canada, you have like now the UK with the highest like ever inflows of like people from outside of the EU uh, moving to the UK. You've got like Germany who's thinking about like loosening uh, the requirements for citizenship. So I think you know things are changing, and I think that's good news. So I think we should have more of that and more you know people moving and going back to their home countries. I think that's probably going to benefit uh, everyone in the end. It's politically still unpalatable, though, to have that argument, like even in the UK. So in other words, yes, we've got like the highest uh, rates. Of, uh, the the inflows into the UK now are actually as high as they were during the, the freedom of movement period within uh, within Europe. Uh, but it's obviously now non-EU citizens. Um, but no one's having the public debate on it and no one's actually defending immigration. And in fact, conspicuously the, the government is is like signaling its anti-immigrant sort of uh, uh, bona fides in order to demonstrate yeah we're, we're protecting british workers etc so hence the rwanda thing uh which is you know a, disc a disgraceful diversion of uh immigration and just dropping them off into this third country and paying rwanda to deal with it um the creation of what is a prison hulk you know if you do if you do prison hulk that's like victorian era england getting a, a ship moored off coast and housing immigrants there um so politically we're not able to, to to deal with economic necessity it seems um and i just wonder whether you know that at some point there's a roadblock to immigration as a solution because of that reason um, so let's talk about AI in a bit, but before we do that, folks, we always have to take a mini break in the middle of this conversation because Brain Food Live is a show that has to come off air and it should never be a bottleneck to stop a conversation because the conversation must continue. We are a conversation starting show, folks. Uh, so if you're interested in continuing the debate about demographic crisis with all of our brilliant people on, on panel here and all of our brilliant commentators, by the way, Take a moment to grab your LinkedIn URL and stick it in the chat stream and then connect to everyone else who has done the same. If you're watching this on any of the LinkedIn's that are out there, uh, please do the same. Take your LinkedIn URL, share it in the comment thread and make sure you connect with everyone else there. Uh, that way you walk away with a, a strengthened network of people that care about this topic. And if you ever want to revisit it, you straight away you've got people you can talk to right there. Just um, a quick note, quick note for people that are watching this on LinkedIn. You don't need to put your URL in. You just say happy to connect. No, you do. I think you should do that. Um, because Why would you do that on LinkedIn? I, I don't know, man. Let's do it inception-wise, you know. Let's keep... Uh, um, <laughs> feels okay. like something you should do. Um, Seems cool. <laughs> all right. People are doing it. Um, okay. So... Uh, by the way, some brilliant comments in the in the thread. I don't know whether any of the panelists caught that, but people saying, "Hey, listen, it's not always a negative thing that people leave." There's someone else validated your point about circular immigration, Mariano, which is very true. I think everyone on screen here is actually a multi-country person, right? We've all lived in, in different places and potentially would do the same. So all of those things, I think, are there. Um, 
But I still don't think we're going to square the political circle here. I, I have yet to see any country explicitly say we're pro-immigration and for it to happen and, and stay within power. Everyone has to be anti-immigrant to get to political office, in which case we always have this sense where the native population feels like betrayed because they've been told, hey, no more people. And then at the same time, the government has surreptitiously brought people in in order to support healthcare, in order to pick the fruit, in order to build the houses. Um, so that kind of subterfuge, I think, is a big betrayal uh, politically to the to the local people. And they're going to react and just keep voting further to the right. So that's my concern. Um, I mean, Leticia, you're nodding your head on this. Uh, I, I fully agree with you on this. Uh, this is this this anti-immigrant sentiment is so strong that everybody is contributing to it, but it will bring more tension in other ways. You mentioned people picking fruit and construction workers, but let's not forget the hundreds of thousands of social workers already mi missing in the UK alone. Uh, in France alone, it's nearly 400,000 workers missing, uh, mostly female workers, to work in retirement homes, to work as domestic workers, to look after the elderly. All of those jobs are rising. In terms of labor shortages, this is in volume, in sheer vo volume, it's bigger than STEM-related shortages, even though STEM-related, by, uh, by far, by far, millions uh, for the EU alone. And uh, how, how can AI help? It's it's pretty unclear. There are ways that generative AI can help uh, produce, uh, you know, chatbots for the elderly and stuff like that. But it seems quite marginal compared to other fields where we can see very clearly how AI can help. Also, also these jobs are so badly paid, which is why we rely on immigrants mostly, so badly paid that there is no incentive for automation. Uh, machines are too expensive, um, robotics is very expensive. Those are things that can make the jobs less physically taxing because when you need to lift an elderly person, you literally break your back at age 45. Uh, and then you have this vicious circle of, you know, the workload gets heavier because there are too few workers. And so they get more exhausted, they burn out, they leave, and you have fewer of them and no immigrants coming in and it gets worse and there are more tensions. And by the way, the more stress you stress the existing workers now, the less kids they're going to have. Because if you're like totally exhausted with your 50, 60, 70 hour weeks and you're just about paying the rent with your low paid job, guess what? You're not going to be thinking, oh, yeah, let's have another kid. You're not going to do that. So we exacerbate the problem and create this doom loop where basically the people who are able to have kids are completely stressed by having to support um, too many dependents at a society level and hence uh, you're, you're right kids. and it's not just kids it's not just kids by the way because if there is no infrastructure to look after children and the elderly child care elderly care you will not be able to work this is exactly what happened in the US when between four and five million women including accountants and lawyers quit their jobs to look after their children because there was no child care so if there is no childcare for a different reason than COVID, uh, there's no childcare because there are no immigrants to look after the children, no people, no workers, uh, the same will happen. Uh, you will have fewer workers available on the market, mostly women, sometimes fathers too, who will just uh, not be able to work either. So that's like a double contraction of the labor force. And do you know what? It's not only the lack of availability of childcare, it's also the cost of it. Um, I, I had a good friend of mine who during the COVID period basically couldn't couldn't go back to work because it economically made no sense for her to do that. Um, she had two kids, 
basically, you know, that child, the child in the US, childcare costs were just like so high, there was no way she could get a job that would actually justify it. So it would be completely self-indulgent for her to do so. And she hasn't done that. And of course, now she's out of the labor market. Um, so Kevin, you're about to say something? Yeah, I'm just going to a couple, a couple of comments. Um, just back to the immigration thing. Remember, the U.S. is probably the only country in the world that's completely built on immigration. Correct. Uh, so we're still very open to immigrants and immigration here, I think, more, more than many other countries in the world, although there's certainly political and economic issues around that big time, especially coming in from South America and Mexico. Uh, but in coming from Europe and other places, we're very positive. In Asia, you know, we have a huge Asian population here coming in. In terms of the childcare thing, it's very interesting. You know, let's look at Singapore. Singapore is a good example of a country with, you know, virtually a birth rate of one per woman, uh, which is way, way below replacement. They've tried everything that you can think of to encourage uh, people to have babies, including massive tax breaks and rebates and all sorts of stuff. But the one thing they haven't done is provide Child free childcare. And that's the number one issue, right? Exactly. <laughs> so when you ask a Singapore woman, why don't you have a baby? She said, because I can't afford childcare. Uh, and elderly parents that in Asia used to be your babysitters, they don't want to do that anymore. They've got their own life. They're healthy. Many of them are still working. So they're saying, my job is not to be your, your babysitter, even though I love my grandchildren. So it's a it's a real it's a real challenge. Uh, it, it is another thing as well. There's an economy of scale with bigger families as well. Um, that that we we could apply that thinking to a, to a large size family. So for instance, if you had a family of six kids, th those six kids will in turn basically together be able to much better look after the uh, all the parents as uh, time goes on because yeah. you're sharing it six ways. Um, but you have two kids or one kid. The, the, the effort that one person then has to take care of their parents is so huge that they may prevent them from having their own kids <laughs> because they don't have the time. So, so the, we're in a doom loop where having too small a family, which basically means we don't actually create the, uh, the economies of scale to look after the elderly, which creates this social pressure and all of it just kind of feeds into this this system that was just starting to tease out and understand a little bit more. Uh, okay, guys, we're coming to the end of the show. We want to get to some solutions, some thoughts as to what to do about it. Um, if, if two things I want to touch on. Firstly, does remote help with this? Um, there has been some data to suggest that remote work actually produces more kids because guess what? If the two parents or the two the people in the conjugal pair actually spend more time together they, they end up having more kids um it's, it's hardly a miracle um but apparently there has been a mini baby boom uh, with in in cities where there has been a big remote uh, sort of shift during the covid period um because basically no commute uh, they're not in the office they're actually spending time together and because they're working from home they've organized their ability to live from home suddenly Childcare becomes less of a problem because they can still deliver their work whilst they're actually still present with the child. So is remote work the way to try and solve this? Thoughts on this? Anybody? I think partially, maybe, uh, really depending. I mean, you look at yeah, a good example for me is something. Let's take the gaming industry or anything like that. That is largely can be done remotely. Uh, there's no reason they could not tap into the workforce in Kenya and Nigeria, which is young, which is really, uh, well, more and more. Uh, better and better educated. Uh, and, you know, if there was some way to encourage the students in those countries to study the things that we need, uh, 
uh, we could certainly set up remote work centers or you know use them as remote workers. So, but it's a, it's a more complicated thing. It requires some strategy and some planning on the part of companies that they want to actually tap into this workforce and use it. And it requires setting up you know payroll systems and all sorts of stuff that a lot of companies don't know how to do. But I think this definitely remote work uh, using that's not necessarily having people in your country move somewhere else, but tapping into the people that already live in these countries uh, and use their expertise and skill could be one of the ways in many of the uh, industries that don't require physical labor to help solve that problem. The, the problem with that, though, is that the, from a government perspective, the tax revenue, where does that go? So, so I think right now, there's, that's, that's a gray space, isn't it? Well, like if I'm a U.S. company or a U.K. company, I put half my team into, I don't know, uh, Tanzania, um, uh, like where am I paying my taxes? I don't know. Like probably Tanzania, I guess. Um, so it's, it's no different Hun, than having your factory in China and paying the workers in China. It's the same thing. We've been doing this for decades. But what will happen in the government, though, because th there's another aspect to the demographic crisis is that there will be a shortfall of government tax revenue um, because less people earning money, less people, less, less people you can tax. Like You're going to have to have a U.S.-style taxing system where you say if a U.S. company does anything, any employee irrespective of jurisdiction is going to be paying something back to me. So uh, we'll potentially see something of that type. Go ahead. Corporate taxes. Okay. Not, and we keep going back to people paying the taxes, not corporations. All right. And I think we need to tax the corporations. They're making more money by using remote labor. Their tax rate should increase. Yeah. So that's one of the solutions then, Kevin, is basically increasing corp tax uh, to help support the social system. Um, okay, cool. Uh, we've lost Adam. That's fine. Um, uh, Leticia, go ahead. Uh, just remote work isn't the same as childcare. I mean, it helps for it, it's it's great for a number of reasons, but try working at home with a one year old and a three year old. It's just it's just not possible. Look at what happened during COVID in the academic world. Uh, mothers of young children submitted fewer research papers, and not because they were lazy, but just because they couldn't uh, do both. Which is why most remote workers, long term, when they have families, they live in cities, and they live in cities because they need this infrastructure of care to be able to work. So even if they work at home behind their computers, they will still need schools, hospitals, I mean, and you name it, all the institutions that support their work. So I don't think remote work in that way can replace those basic fundamental things that are childcare, healthcare, all infrastructures. This is the, this is the way to start if you want a better labor market. So let's lean into the childcare. What do we do to scale up childcare? I mean, do we do we do the the kibbutz style thing? You know, like try again, economy of scale. Um, uh, very very expensive right now. You got individual childcareers, etc. Right, just get the kids into a camp uh, and just raise them all in one go. Uh, is that something we need need to try? Why not? All kinds of ways uh, are, are, are interesting to foster innovation and different ways of, of looking after those children. It's just um, also pay people, pay work as well, because those jobs will be more attractive. And if, if those workers are paid better, there is an incentive to be more innovative and use tech in a better way. So as long as they're badly paid, there's no incentive to use high tech and make those jobs better. So if you want to make them better, start by paying them a little bit more. Yeah, there's no question. All of the jobs that are required. Sorry, Mar uh, Mariano, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted to like maybe quickly add something that you already have, for example, countries in Europe that actually have pretty good 
uh, childcare. And those are countries that also have like some of the highest female employment rate and they actually have a higher fertility rate as well. So everything kind of like goes together in this like, you know, virtuous circle. These are countries that, well, we all know, you know, mainly kind of like North Europe, Scandinavia, Nordics, where obviously there is a lot of like public spending into these kind of like services. So it's a priority made by, you know, the government sets aside money, like a lot of money. Um, as Leticia is saying, to pay for the services, to pay like people who work in this industry, like good wages, uh, so that they themselves can afford, you know, like having families, etc. cetera. Uh, I think like remote is great. It's flexibility is, I think it's always great. You know, it gives people the, you know, the flexibility to also stay home with their kids or to care for parents or someone else when they want to. But I also don't think it's a solution. You know, it cannot be in place of the, the child care, right, you know, cool. like caring child. And build more housing. There was, you know, a lot about Canada in the chat. It's the one bottleneck, right? Childcare and housing, just build more because people will continue to move to cities rather than far away in the countryside. There was a really good article. I forget what it was. I should share it about why the Brits can't build houses. And you're absolutely right on this, Leticia. There was all kinds of like, once you create a system that try, ostensibly tries to protect certain local areas, suddenly that becomes very, very difficult to shift. And uh, people can't, uh, uh, there's no incentive to go and build. Okay, we've got to talk about AI real quick because AI is both a threat and a potential solution uh, to the demographic crisis. Um, uh, how, uh, here's, here's a theory, guys. I want to throw it out to you. Uh, I, I'm the only person that I know thinks things like this. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty certain it's a stupid idea. Um, but I'm going to throw it out anyway. Um, so AI, everyone talks about AI is going to improve productivity, right? Um, everyone agrees it does that because, hey, it's going to, you know, uh, crunch this report down. It, it takes me uh, two hours to read. Suddenly I can get a summary in two minutes. Brilliant. Uh, that's, that's efficiency. I'm going to say... We should say AI, we should reject productivity as an outcome of AI. Um, we should say, you know what, my, opera, my output level is going to stay exactly the same. Pre-AI and post-AI, output level exactly the same. What I want is my time back. Um, and if I have my time back, then potentially I'll be able to spend more time with my wife. Maybe I'll spend more time with my family. Maybe I'll, I'll be able to visit my mom or take care of my people. Um, why, don't, why doesn't technology help us do that? And shouldn't we really, isn't that the true solution to the demographic crisis is that we need to separate the work side, stop throwing our entire souls into work and say, okay, AI is doing the work. Apparently AI is doing all the work, brilliant. AI can do it then. I want 20 hours of my week back so I can take care of my people. Um, and that way we can reduce the requirement of the state to do it. Um, uh, you know, what do you think of that? Korea wants to increase the working time uh, when faced with this, uh, you know, this, this uh, demographic crisis. And, and you're right, Hong, the solution would be for them to work less uh, to release some of the pressure to, to solve some of the problems. So there's a reason why the four day work week is so popular because we know it's possible. We know that with the productivity gains, we could rather than be paid more or work more, just have more time. That's one way of sharing those productivity gains. And actually one way to resolve that, that corporate tax thing, don't need to do the corporate tax any higher. You can simply say, we're not going to give you more productivity. Simple as that, Mr. Boss. Um, you know, this AI is doing my job for me. That's, that's it. I'm, I'm 10 hours a week for you, sir. What do you think, Mar Mar Mariano? Is this insane? I mean, as an economist, I'm going to be a bit like maybe, you know, uh, hold back a little bit uh, from like making too strong claims. I think you're right. Like, uh, you know, at the bottom line is that, yes, I think we hope and we expect like a, a 
like LLMs and you know, like a generative AI to have a, an impact on labor markets, like on productivity for sure. I think just we we don't know exactly how long this is going to take, right? So past experiences of like different technologies, you know, have shown that you know there are like transition periods where you know you might have like quite a bit of disruption. Uh, you you might end up like perhaps like a decade or two later with you know some impacts. I, I was reading on the Economist last night. You know, like they talk about how AI might disperse like across firms, and in order to have like a truly you know like uh, overall labor market impact, you actually need like small and micro enterprises to actually take up like AI tools. And that's not something that you can probably do, you know, like in a month or two. So yeah, I think I would definitely welcome, you know, uh, working like a few hours as a, as something that is kind of like fully accepted and maybe even like regulated by, by governments. But I, I'm not sure if that's going to be, it's going to be the way uh, I, I think uh, past experience shows that, you know, pe people will adjust. I think giving people choice is probably like, would be the way to go also so that different people might choose the amount of time they want to put in by without necessarily like punishing or you know like giving a premium to uh, either one right so and i think sometimes maybe in, in today's labor market you do have a premium for people who are like <laughs> working like longer hours uh but yeah i think one where perhaps like another in, in, interesting uh point that was mentioned is around you know like also what's the potential of ai in uh, solving you know the bottlenecks that we mentioned so for example you know like the uh, elderly like uh, elderly care so are we going to be able to perhaps like have fewer workers uh, employed in that industry i think as a, as a kind of like goal i think that's probably where we're going to see like a really big impact because that's that's already like an industry and, a, and an area of like our labor market that is, is struggling quite a bit uh, but yeah i, I think it's uh, so we'll have to wait and see really yeah, uh, the vision is, do we get the robots to do the work or do we do the work of looking after our people? Um, that is the, I just had this vision of, you know, uh, our, our old age parents being taken care of by robots and automation. I'm thinking, okay, that's that's one way, but you know, maybe a human being. Yeah, I think that. Japan is like, they're, they're experimenting some stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, it's Japan, definitely possible. Japan is doing that now. They've got robots that actually pick up people when they fall down and they're your companion. They, they, they uh, give you your medication on time. They uh, they remind you to do things. Uh, the robotic world will have some impact, but I don't know that it's really going to ever replace human care for elderly people. It, it may help it. I think the real impact of AI is going to be more at the bottom end of the workforce. I think that's where we're already seeing it. Um, I think you're going to see robots, which are already just, just exponentially growing, the use of robots, and I think we don't even realize it. But, you know, the auto industry is reduce the number of employees by millions by using robots. So Tesla is highly roboticized and they're getting even more and more roboticized. So Amazon has just invested millions more in robots for their warehouse. So within a couple of years, they will be worth probably almost nobody in an Amazon warehouse. So, I mean, the, the bottom end of the workforce is going to be really impacted by AI more than the professionals will be augmented by it. Uh, whether it increases productivity or not, uh, the jury's out. Uh, but um, uh, we'll we'll see where that goes. Do you know what you've just set us up for the next conversation, Kevin? Um, like, what does the world look like when we are fully automated? 
is this the end of capitalism? Because guess what? Like, you're going to pay a robot a wage? Are you going to program the robots to go and spend stuff on the Friday night? No. Like, how, the, the, if the wage economy disappears as a result of over-robotization, it's the end of consumerism. It's the end of economic growth. We're going to basically... Remember, remember uh, uh, Ford, when he first created his factory, he made sure that he was paying the workers enough that they could buy the damn car. Um, now, do we have the same attitude when we're thinking about automation or we are kind of uh, at a company level, we're not thinking wide enough. We're just thinking, you know, what, we can get more competitive than the next company, which ultimately means less and less human workers and less and less consumerism overall. Kevin, hold the thought. Letitia and Mariano will bring us back for that conversation. I think that's what to talk about. Um, but we are at the end of today, folks. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining. I hope you've enjoyed this kind of a little bit of a segue away from our normal topic. But I think it is important for us to kind of open the conversation into these major trends that percolate down to our operating work at recruiting. Because when you're wondering about the candidate crisis, uh, is it actually the fact we have a people crisis? We, we literally don't have the people to do the work. Um, it's not about getting better at sourcing. It's about understanding the deeper societal reasons as to why the people aren't there to do the work in the first place. Uh, so folks, uh, if you've enjoyed this show, make sure you follow the channel. We do this every week. Uh, next week, I totally forget. Oh yeah, next week we're going to talk about overcoming the imposter syndrome. So folks, if you are an imposter, and I think you know you are, you want to sign up to the show and make sure we talk about it. How do we get over? <laughs> how, how do we get over this other crisis that we have? Um, so let me say thanks to our guest. It's been brilliant, uh, Leticia. Great to see you. Wonderful uh, to have you on the show. We'll definitely get you back if you're for it. Um, Kevin Wheeler, wonderful to see you as well. Of course, you're going to be coming back at some point. Uh, and Mariano, congratulations on a new job. Uh, we'll get you back to the show as well. Um, thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Cool. That was a great show, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that. We should do more of these deeper, like, uh, philosophical chats, I think. I, I, I kind of enjoy them. Even though at a practical level, what the heck are we going to do as recruiters, right? Um, we don't know. But at least we have some sort of idea as to why that is. Anyway, remember, folks, we have to battle for our time back. There's no reason why AI should uh, should not take on our work. We should not be fearful of AI taking over the work. We just need to fight for the idea that we need to reduce our labor and maintain our jobs. That's what. That's the next big argument for uh, for us going forward. Anyway, um, uh, we're out next week. We'll be at actually. It's going to be Wreckfest after aftermath. So uh, if you're at Wreckfest next week, I'll see you there. Otherwise, I'll see you next Friday. Thanks for watching, everybody.